Hey, everybody. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. This is the podcast that brings you great stories and the Catholic news that matters each week. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. Before we get started, a quick question from our producers. Are you subscribed to CNA Newsroom yet? It feels like I've been asking this at the beginning of every podcast lately, but essentially, I guess this is our subscription drive. And the good thing is that subscribing is free. It just means that you open your phone and open the app that you get your podcasts from and type CNA Newsroom and then hit subscribe. And uh, you should do that because then you'll know when we have new episodes and because then our show sponsors will know how many subscribers we have and then they will buy us new things. Maybe I want I want a hat. That's a CNA Newsroom. So please subscribe so I can get a hat. This week, we are talking about converts to Catholicism. Who are they? What's the deal? Where do they come from? We have some very interesting stories lined up for you guys. A Salesian sister who converted to Catholicism in seventh grade and says the Eucharist saved her life. Comedian Jeremy McClellan, who became a Catholic last year and will tell us his story. And Iranian-American author and journalist Saurabh Amiri, who just published a book about his own conversion. And also... I'm here right now with CNA's managing editor, Carl Bunderson, and Carl is co-hosting this week because he is also a convert. So, Carl, what's the story? I was searching for truth kind of from the time I was in high school. One of my friends, who's now a priest in the Denver Archdiocese, we would go out to trivia every week, and actually it was conversations with him and some of my other friends about various particular truth claims of the Catholic Church, especially about morality, that got me thinking about the Church's truth claims as having been established by Christ. Then I took a couple of classes in Christian history and early medieval European history while I was at CU and was exposed to church fathers and primary texts while I was there, which kind of like deepened my exposure to the church. Yeah, and eventually I just became convinced that between apostolic succession and the Eucharist, Catholic was what I thought was true. One thing that I think is interesting about that is that conversion stories to the faith are different. There are people who convert intellectually like you did. There are people who convert through friendship. There are people who convert through beauty, people who um, who convert through the influence uh, of just one person or the witness of just one person. And so today we're going to hear different stories about how different people encountered the truth of the Catholic Church and themselves became Catholic. So let's do this. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Sister Brittany Harrison is a Salesian sister in New Jersey. She's a campus minister and a theology teacher at an all-girls Catholic high school. She spoke this week with our producer, Kate Vike. Here's their conversation. So when I was born, my parents felt like, okay, having belief in Jesus is a value, but going to church isn't really that key. So I had the whole, like, raise the baby up Lion King style at a Protestant service one day and offer her to God. I see pictures of this. I think it's hilarious. I just picture, you know, like the music from the, you know, and then when I was four, I, I distinctly remember my baptism, even though I was four years old, because I remember being welcomed by... Uh, the ministers, and I wasn't sure what was going on, but I had a special velvet dress on, and, you know, I got this cool little candle that I never saw again afterwards. 
but it was a, an experience for me of feeling like I was part of something bigger. And that remained with me most of my childhood because I always had that longing to belong to something that drew me towards something bigger, that drew me towards mm. this God that I would hear about occasionally. And so I went to you know public school for most of my life. And once I hit middle school, it became a very negative experience. I think there's really great public schools out there. And I unfortunately was not at one that was too awesome. And this is before we really had the sensitivity towards bullying and, you know, really intervening because it's so damaging to young people. We understand it a lot better now. But for me, it really contributed to an overall feeling of not being loved or lovable or good enough. By the end of seventh grade, I became suicidal. I, I really contemplated ending my own life because I felt so alone. And one of my motivating questions for the desire was that I didn't see that there was something greater out there. And I prayed one time and I said distinctly, God, I don't even know if you exist or if you're real or if I'm just talking to the wall right now. But I pretty much said, you know, if you are real, show yourself to me. If you love me, show me how much you love me. And wherever you are, show me where you are. And if you don't do this soon, I don't know if I can hold on anymore because I'm really crushed. And that was my prayer. I mean, it came from the deepest, most raw place in my heart. I wasn't even sure if it would do anything. I mean, part of me thought, you know, there is no God because I wasn't seeing any real authentic love out in the world. Uh, and so I was very surprised about a month after saying that prayer or so that my grandfather called and said, you know what, I want to send you to Catholic school because I think you'll get a better education there. It wasn't because of the faith environment, um, but because he thought the education would be better. So I switched there for seventh grade. We went to the first school mass of the school year. This is the first time I've ever been to a Catholic mass. I only had one previous experience of a Catholic church in my life, and it was when I was very young, probably, again, around four years old. I remember my grandmother taking me into this beautiful church in Techne, Illinois. And it's called the Chapel of the Holy Spirit. And it's just gorgeous. And I remember the holy water font and being like, why on earth is there like a little bathtub, <laughs> you know, outside the church, but thinking it was kind of cool and just being awed by the beauty of it. And so when I went to Mass, I had that same sense of like, wow, there's something here, but I don't know what. And during the Mass... When we got to the part that now I know, you know, as a catechized Catholic, is the moment of the consecration where the priest takes the bread and the wine. He said, this is my body, this is my blood, and it becomes the real presence of Jesus. In that moment, it's almost like, if you've ever seen like in The Matrix or a movie where they just stop time and everything is suspended except for like the one or two characters that are having an encounter, that's what it felt like all of a sudden. And I had this overwhelming sense of being loved and that God was there in that bread and wine. Like he was there on the altar and he was there for me. If I was the only person that existed, he would still be there for me. And that his love for me was infinite and unconditional. And it was just this incredible revelation of who God is and his love that took place, I think, probably time-wise in five seconds. But I felt like I was there for a year with him, and at the same time, it felt like the blink of an eye. And it blew my mind. Like, everything I'd asked him, like, where are you? And it was like he said, I'm here. You know, and how much do you love me? And it was infinitely, you know, I <clears throat> everything I longed for in that moment was shown to me. And it was like all my woundedness and my feeling of not being worthy and not being wanted, it was just pushed away because he was there. And... 
I really believe he gave me a very profound healing and I think also a mission to share with young people who are suffering this love of God in the Eucharist because, you know, God doesn't give us gifts just for us. You know, it's, it's for the church to build the church up. And so when, you know, the pause button was pressed again and things started playing once more, I was in awe because, one, I didn't know what the heck just happened to me. I thought this was maybe something that happened to every Catholic when they went to Mass. I don't know. And at the same time, I couldn't believe, like, how people were looking bored or not paying attention because I just had this mind-blowing experience, and I couldn't go up and receive the Eucharist because I wasn't Catholic. And that was so painful to me because I wanted to receive the Eucharist after that encounter. And so I told my parents I wanted to become Catholic. There was some, you know, tension and like, no, why do you want to do that? Because they had both been hurt very badly. Um, but I kind of said to them, you know, teenagers go through phases. You should be glad that my phases, I want to become religious, you know. <laughs> so so they, they relented. And I went through RCIA uh, and became Catholic as an eighth grader. And it was just something that filled my heart with such joy. And it took a few years to get to practice my faith openly because my family didn't go to church and, and I didn't drive yet or anything like that. But I continued to kind of feed that that nucleus, that little, little uh, beginning of my Catholic identity by reading the lives of the saints and spending time in prayer and, you know, watching Catholic shows and, you know, anybody I could talk to or anything that I could use to feed it. And during that time I met the Salesian priests and brothers, and they kind of took me under their wing. And, you know, long story short, here I am many years later, and I'm a Salesian sister because I want young people to be able to have that encounter with God. And I want to be part of that because, for me, it saved my life. You know, the Eucharist saved my life. If the Eucharist was not a thing, if God had not answered that prayer, I don't think I would be here. And I really believe so strongly in the healing power of the Eucharist, the great love that we can encounter there if we come with an open heart that I wanted to give my life to do that. And I'm so grateful to God that I get to do that as a Salesian sister. How was that for your family and friends to wrap their heads around? Um, are they Catholic now, or is it still a point of you trying to witness to them and explain to them kind of why you made this choice? It was it was hard and confusing at first. My mother would tell me stories because she had gone to Catholic school of sisters who were kind to her and sisters who were not kind to her. And that really scared me because I didn't want to become like that. But they, you know, they hesitatingly allowed me to go, but always with the message of like, you know, if it doesn't work out, you can always come home. You know, if you just need to leave, just call us. We'll make sure you get home, like have an evacuation plan kind of thing, because they didn't know, you know, what it was going to be like. And my family became more comfortable with me as a sister, the more they saw how this vocation helped me to be more fully myself. And you're working with kids who high school is just a rough time. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think everyone pretty much. Yes. And so what is kind of the message that you give your kids on a regular basis? So I always try to foster the relationship first. And that's very much St. John Bosco's method of, you know, love the young people and then they'll come to love what you love. And I just because I work with girls, especially right now at this point in my ministry, I really put a lot of effort into beginning with them with this idea that you are good, you are loved, and God's love doesn't depend on how perfect you think you are or what you think you look like or what you accomplish or do. It's unchangeable. No sin you commit could ever make him take his love away. 
He is always there. He is forgiveness and mercy. You know, he does have standards he wants us to strive for. He does have expectations we need to try to meet. But confession is always available, and nothing ever affects the level of love he has for us. And, you know, this idea that they are good and they don't need to earn love is such a countercultural message to them because, you know, the social media culture, you have to work so hard to get likes. So if you have to work so hard to get likes, how hard should you have to work to get love then? And so for them, there is just this real challenge to dig deep, to be honest, to acknowledge their brokenness, but in their brokenness to find Christ. And I think for me, because I know the pain of bullying or feeling not worthy or not lovable or not wanted and all that kind of stuff that God allowed me to go through as a young person, that when I'm journeying with them and accompanying them as their teacher, as as their big sister, I can relate and I have an insight that I've gained through my suffering, that God has redeemed my suffering and made it like medicine for them. Converts have a very unique perspective, I think. I'm what they call a cradle Catholic. I was born and raised Catholic. With that in mind, what would you tell me and what would you tell our listeners with the assumption that many of them may be also cradle Catholics from your perspective as a convert to Catholicism? I think that we're all in a process of conversion every single day. You know, we use this word metanoia, which means to, you know, make a complete turn towards the good and away from the bad, that even if we are a cradle Catholic, we still have to choose to live the ongoing conversion of relationship with Christ. And we're in a very difficult time in church history where the things that are making us feel ashamed, embarrassed, and frustrated that are going on among some members of our church really challenges us and provides us an opportunity to choose again our Catholic faith and to prioritize and recognize the good that is there in spite of the darkness and sin of our fellow Catholics. And that right now what the world needs is not people who are experts in theology or perfect programs of outreach to the poor. What the world really needs, although those things are good, are people who want to be saints, a witness of holiness. And that requires conversion every single day. So you may be born into the faith, you may be a cradle Catholic, but every morning each of us should wake up as a convert. Absolutely. Well, sister, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk with me. It truly was just such a joy to hear your story and hear about hear about your mission now. So thanks again. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks, Kate. And thanks for this opportunity to share it. Hello, my name is Jeremy McClellan, and I'm a stand-up comedian, and this is my story about how Muslims made me Catholic. I was born in the city of Charleston, which, if you haven't been, is a small outdoor slavery museum on the coast of South Carolina. My dad was an elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, or the PCA, which is the church that Christ founded in 1973. And I was a good Calvinist, you know, which means I was predestined to become Catholic, I think. And, and one thing you have to know about Calvinism is it's the only religion invented by a lawyer other than Satanism. And if you've ever met a Calvinist, you can tell because as a Calvinist, Christianity was, for me, kind of a legal system of thought. And, and what it lacked in ritual, it more than it made up for in ideas, which was great for me because I loved ideas. My childhood was, was mostly spent in the library, in my room reading, or, or most often just in my own head. After high school, I went to Covenant College, which is a PCA liberal arts university on top of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, where I, I majored in history, which I thought would be easy because I knew there was only 6,000 years of it. 
And I, but I also studied church history, which again, I thought would be easy because there was only 500 years of it, you know, Christianity having started in Germany in the year 1500. But, but I found out, you know, unfortunately, there was, there was stuff before that. I, re- I read Mr. Thomas Aquinas and was very upset to find out he was Catholic. And then I, I read Mr. Augustine, who also turned out to be Catholic. And then I read all of the church uncles who were, again, Catholic. And, and, and the whole time, I was, I, I was very upset that Jesus' clearly Protestant disciples had written the Bible in a way that anyone could interpret, and then nobody interpreted it correctly for 1,500 years. I then proceeded to devour any Catholic material I could smuggle past the Protestant censors and became very interested in the work of Stanley Hauerwas and Alistair McIntyre and Richard John Newhouse and, and you know, all the writings of Pope Benedict and, and John Paul II. And, and, and I became convinced on an intellectual level that Catholicism was true, which is a, a very Protestant reason to become Catholic, right? Because my, my faith at the time still remained an abstraction. You know, after all, I didn't know any Catholics, nor was I involved in any way in the, in the praxis of Catholic life. And so after college, I thought, man, I, I really got to find some Catholics. And so I, I moved to Chicago, where I began living in the L'Arche, which is an international network of communities started by Jean Vanier, uh, where people with and without intellectual disabilities live together. They're very beautiful things, and you read about them, and they just sound so amazing. And so you know, before I went, I was so excited and my hopes were so high. And then when I got there, I discovered, unfortunately, that this perfect Catholic community was far from perfect. In fact, it was, it was, it was full of Catholics, which it turns out is a very horrible thing to discover about a community. And so during the three years I spent at L'Arche, I, I, I ended up coming face to face with not just the brokenness of, of, of the Catholic Church and Catholics in the world, but my own brokenness as well. And, and, and near the end, you know, I, 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 I fell in love with a girl, and, and after we broke up, I, I slipped into a very long and deep depression. I was, I was unable to do my work, and, and ultimately I couldn't take it anymore, and, and they couldn't take me either, so I, I left. And I remember driving back home in 2010 in my parents' minivan and, and realizing that I had gone to Chicago to find my faith and, and ended up losing it instead. And so I entered what is, in hindsight, the darkest period of my life. I, I was an alcoholic. I did drugs. I thought about suicide. And, and, and so like a lot of people whose lives are falling apart, I started doing stand-up comedy. And it's not an exaggeration to say that if I hadn't found comedy, I would probably be dead uh, or worse, still a Protestant. You know, because comedy became, for me, like a way of taking all of my inner chaos and processing it into an artistic expression that could connect with others. Which, if you haven't been in that position, you have no idea how miraculous it truly is to dig down deep into your own loneliness and find something that other people enjoy, right? Like, that's just such a miracle when it happens. And, and it turns out I was good at it. You know, I became a very quick success, and amazingly, people actually wanted to hear what I had to say. It was during this time that I, I also met my wife, Stephanie, who was a very lapsed Catholic. And she actually wanted to be a nun growing up, which means she wanted to marry Jesus. But then they, they broke up, you know, and she left him at the altar. And, and, and then she married me, which I don't know if anyone listening also has a wife whose ex-boyfriend is a lot more successful than him, but I certainly do. My, my wife's ex-boyfriend is the son of God. And, you know, one of the things I started talking about on stage was religion, particularly what it's like to be religious in the West right now. We're in a very strange period in time. And and it wasn't long before my material started going viral in the Muslim community. 
I started getting bookings and, and requests and, and started traveling. And over the next three years, I ended up performing at hundreds of Muslim events and even did a comedy tour in Pakistan. And, and one thing I, I noticed being around Muslims all the time is that compared to the very abstract, privatized, spiritualized idea of religion that I had, the Islam that was practiced by the Muslims I knew was, was more of a way of life. And I, and I don't mean that in a totalitarian way. I, I mean it involved prayer, fasting, pilgrimage, economics, politics, diet, modesty, you name it, where, where every sphere of life is, is answerable to one's faith. And, and, and I knew from history that Christians used to have that. And so I wanted to know how we got to a point where Christianity was no longer a way of life, but a set of abstract propositional beliefs that we supposedly hold to while the rest of our life is outsourced to the nation state and the market. And the short answer I came up with is the Enlightenment and before that, the Reformation. And, and so all of this stuff is rattling around the back of my mind. And when, and when I got back from Pakistan, I, I entered once again into a very dark night of the soul. And it was a strange time for me because for months, I, I really had no idea what was going on. The only way I can describe it is that I felt haunted, like I was being pursued. And then on November 18th, 2017, I was in the middle of a tour and I was staying at the Holiday Inn at the Chicago airport. And, and I had what I can only describe as an ineffable experience of the Virgin Mary, who I assume had a, a layover in Chicago at the same time as me and thought, well, I have a few hours to spare. I might as well stop in and freak Jeremy out. And, and, and I don't think I'd be able to describe it if I tried, but at the end I ended up praying a rosary for the first time, falling asleep, and, and the next morning I woke up Catholic. And so I, I called my wife and I flew home and I, 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 you know, I, I, I told her what had happened and, and we called a priest that we knew and, and a few months later I was received into full communion with the Catholic Church. And so looking back on my life, I can see all the roads leading me to Rome, which is it's weird because growing up Protestant, the idea is what's the least I can believe and still be saved, Right. Uh, and so from that perspective, Catholicism seems to have so much extra unneeded stuff. And, and of course it seems that way, but, but because God didn't send a set of beliefs. He sent himself into the world to plant the seed of the kingdom of God to begin creation anew. And, and so Catholicism is that world. It is a world. And, and obviously it involves propositional truths, but it is not reducible to them for the simple reason that the creeds are themselves products of that world. They are like flowers that grow from the soil of the New Eden. And it was the New Eden that came to me in that hotel room in Chicago. For months, I wasn't sure why. I had, I had zero connection to or fascination with Mary at any point in my life. And, and God could have sent someone else, you know, someone less in demand for bookings. And, and it probably would have done the trick, right? You know, some lesser saint, I, I, I would have probably reacted the same way. But there are two reasons, I think, for Mary, and, and one is that Mary holds a very revered place in Islam, and, you know, sort of in a, in a very much more profound way than I'm doing, she may one, end up one day serving as a bridge between our traditions. And the second reason is more personal, and I only realized it months later when I was reading something Pope Benedict had written, and he said, if Mary no longer finds a place in many theologies and ecclesiologies, the reason is obvious. They have reduced the faith to an abstraction, and an abstraction does not need a mother. An abstraction does not need a mother. And that's, I mean, that's when I knew, you know, like Christianity is not a set 
of propositional beliefs. It is the reality that those beliefs express. Like, it's not a belief about Jesus, it's Jesus. It's not a belief about the Eucharist, it's the Eucharist. And so we can say things like, well, Protestants and Catholics, we agree on the essentials, but at the end of the day, what is more essential than the real presence of Jesus? I don't mean the belief about the real presence, but the real presence of Jesus, right? And, you know, thankfully, my parents, who are still Protestant, have taken it very well. The key, I think, is to spend so much time around Muslims that when you tell your parents that you've decided to convert, they're just very thankful it's not to Islam. Really softens the blow. I cannot, cannot encourage that enough. And I remember going over to their house with my wife and telling my parents that I was going to convert. And my mom's first reaction was, well, explain Mary. And so I did. And, and, and my dad's first reaction was, well, we still have all the books from the first time you were going to convert, so you're, you're welcome to have them. And so I got the books, and I put them in my car, and, and that was that. Anyway, that's my story. I, I thank you for listening. My name's Jeremy McClellan. Thank you so much. Surab Amari was born to a Muslim family in Iran. He was an atheist, and now he's a Catholic. Sorab details his conversion in his new memoir, From Fire by Water. Sorab sat down with DC editor Ed Condon to talk about his new book and the conversion that it details. Sorab, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about your book. It was a great read, and I know that a lot of people have been buying it and talking about it. The first question I want to ask you is this. In the nicest way, you're relatively young to write a memoir. What prompted you? Well, as I say in the preface of the book, that uh, no, no 34, I'm now 34, but I was 32, 33 when I wrote it. No 32, 33-year-old should write a, a generalized autobiography, and this is not that. It's a memoir, so it specifically only pinpoints the bits of my life, some of them having to do with personal events, some of them having to do with the life of the mind and the, life of the spiritual life, that led me from atheism at age 13 to being received into Catholic Church when I was nearly, um, when I was 31. And that's it. It's not a generalized autobiography. And again, I, I, I wouldn't read a 34-year-old's general autobiography, and I haven't written one. But the immediate thing that prompted it was the fact that um, when I began instruction with a priest in London to become a Roman Catholic, I did not plan to announce it to the world at all. I, if anything, I would announce after I was baptized but certainly not when I did, which was two months, two months into the instruction. But what happened was that across the channel, um, as you know, this, this horrific event happened with Father Jacques Amel, who's a French priest, um, who, was, who had his um, throat slit by a pair of uh, Islamists inspired by Islamic State. Um, and that event, and just the f- images of this frail, gentle, holy man you know, that you found online so moved me that I took to my Twitter account like any millennial and I wrote hashtag I am Jacamel in the style of the Je suis Charlie hashtags. And then I said, and oh, by the way, this is the moment to announce I'm becoming a Roman Catholic. And then that tweet just took a life of its own. Various news, Christian news outlets picked it up and turned it into stories. And what most of them did was they looked up my Wikipedia page and they surmised that I was from Iran and therefore inferred that I must have been a Muslim and that this admittedly sort of uh, important event had instantaneously converted me to Christianity and Catholicism such that as though I were you know praying five times a day to Allah one day and then the following day embracing Jesus Christ in his church which was not true it was much more complicated it was a culmination of 20 years of reading and thinking and just life experiences so I felt like I had to 
set the record straight. And so I wrote, it took 60,000 words of a memoir to do it. And so thus was born from Fire by Water. Okay, a lot of people did have the assumption when you put out that famous tweet that, you know, I am Jacques Hamel, yeah. I, you know, I, this is a good time to announce I'm converting to Catholicism. Yeah. A lot of people made the assumption, like you say, that you had been a Muslim. Were you ever a Muslim? I mean, do you ever consider yourself to have been one? Well, it, first of all, it's a patrilineal religion. So in the sense that if your father is Muslim, which mine nominally was, although he was basically an unbeliever, you, I guess you're technically Muslim. Um, did I deeply consider myself a Muslim? Maybe at age six or seven, vaguely. Um, but, I mean, the, the kind of milieu I was growing up in was very much secular, liberal. My parents were children of 1968, whatever that means to you. But to me, it means a, a kind of cultural liberalism, rebelled against authority. It just so happened that they found themselves in Iran right after the revolution. So there was this constant clash between the interior world of our, what was behind closed doors, very much secular, surrounded by Western books and music and movies and so forth, and what was happening in the outside world, which was a newly founded Islamic theocracy. So I sometimes had to pretend to be Muslim, to be devoutly Muslim as the regime recognizes it. Whereas at home, there was another story. But I couldn't always say that sometimes when you perform certain rites in public, you can get into them. So when there's, you know, the Shiism has all this sort of mourning for these martyred saints, there's something moving about them, and there were moments when I when I shed tears for the for Imam Hussein, who's the the most important of the Shiite saints, and that line between did I really believe or was that just childish fervor forced upon me by living in the Islamic Republic? It was all blurred. So I, but the bottom line is, at age thirteen, I declared myself an atheist. So that I mean, that's something that really jumps out in the book is you know to be a thirteen year old declare yourself an atheist is a pretty strong act of the will for yeah. somebody that young. And the book doesn't read like someone who's changing religion or finding religion. It reads like someone who's looking for truth. The thing that struck me about it was you went through a lot of political and ideological strands of thought to get where you eventually ended up in the church. Were you looking for something or was it, were you looking for something particularly? Did you see yourself as being on a quest for truth, even as a teenager, as a young man, that came from that declaration of atheism that you made? Or were you just sort of seeing where the world took you? I was on a quest to rebel against established authority and thou shalt. Because as I had received them, certainly from Islam, I, I found them repellent. By them, I mean the idea of, of established authority and, and sort of divine thou shalt. But as it happened, the quest to demolish those things led me to them, oddly enough, in the sense that um, I actually, it turned out that even when I was going through Marxism, for example, which was which was after we moved to the U.S. at age when I was about to turn 14, then maybe at 17, 18, I got seriously into Marxism, whatever that means. And I, I actually joined a, a kind of hard left group. But even that, in a way, had a religious component, because as you know, Marxism has this vision of history moving in a predetermined direction. And then there's a sort of apocalyptic event of the revolution that then redeems all the injustices of the past so that history itself wipes every tear. So although I didn't tell myself that at the time, in retrospect, it seems to me that I was always looking for moral absolutes and for truth. Do you now, as a Catholic looking back, do you see an inevitable current of divine history in your own conversion story? Do you see a yes. guiding hand behind a, a sort of going from a, a sort of secular, non-practicing Islamic background in Iran to 
being in the United States and taking a very sort of radical, rebellious left-wing view to where mm -hmm. it got you in the church. Yes. I, w I was reading um, uh, the interviews, Cardinal, um, is it Sarah or Sarah? I never know. I think it's Sarah. He has a wonderful trilogy of books that are interviews between him and this French, this French journalist. And early on in the first one, um, which is called God or Nothing, he just says, like, I look at my life and I can't help but see, like, why did I make all these sort of circuitous paths that led me to his ultimately his becoming you know the youngest uh, archbishop in the church at age 33 and then eventually becoming uh, a cardinal and so forth from a small town in guinea like the not even town it's just sort of a, a village the most isolated place and i i had to sort of underline that 700 times and put stars by it because i you know my life always is so unlikely Certainly, as I write in the book, there are moments in the book where I describe encounters with the mass that couldn't have been accidental, that were providential, where just at the moment when I was, you know, in the most need, spiritually, psychologically, uh, personally, I happened to find the mass, and I something compelled me to go in. So yeah, I mean, as, as, as crazy as that sounds to secular ears, I do see both a divine hand in history and in my own life. I guess that leads me to my next question, which is, is this a confessional memoir or is this a cautionary tale for people? I mean, you say you're writing this sort of self-consciously as a millennial saying, this is how I got to where I am yeah. and it needs some unpacking. Is there not so much a message, but is there something that you see of your own history in the way a lot of people of our generation are currently living and going ideologically? Yes, so the story is very universal, which is why I think people, when they pick it up, as exotic as some of the cultural elements are because I'm from Iran and this kind of secular milieu but in a very religious society blah 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 it's basically a, a teenage slash 20s your uh, kind of buildings Roman in a way that, that everyone can I think identify with um, it's and it's written I mean when I was writing it I had in mind some 20 something version of myself who is overwhelmed by our ideas our, our sort of dominant ideal ide ideologies of the age which say that you know, whatever is newest is best. And uh, that all the sort of old truths of divine revelation and the classical Western tradition have been debunked by neuroscience and evolution and uh, intersectionality or what have you. Some version of me that, that, that is tempted by these ideas will maybe read it and it will save him or her a lot of misery that I had to go through. So in that sense, it's the cautionary tale. In, in terms of being saved from misery, there are a lot of people in the church um, at all levels who have had a lot of difficulty, a lot of suffering, a lot of misery in the last few months, looking at all the crises that have hit the church and everything. You came into the church, as you write, through a really personal and immediate contact through the sacraments, through the mass, yeah. you know, sort of meeting this, this power of the divine directly. Is that something that you rely on in the face of all of this as a relatively new convert? Yes. One thing is I, I came in in 2016. So I came in with my eyes open. The 2002 events obviously had been in the news and, and I, it's not like I was unaware of them or I was going in blind. So that's one of the elements that, that is part of the story in the sense that I, it wasn't like I joined the church and then was suddenly shocked by McCarrick or was suddenly shocked by this and that. Another fact is that you know Christianity doesn't have a naive worldview about human nature. Almost before we know anything about Adam and Eve, they, they've already tried to sit in Almighty God's place and then been banished from the garden. So almost in, in, immediately we have brokenness written into human nature being part of the Christian story. So that makes you 
not naive, you know, that a divine institution filled with fallen human beings is going to reflect that tension. And then the last thing is, you, like you said, the sacraments, which if you're in an extreme kind of situation, as you know, a canon lawyer, like if, if a priest for some reason has to use muddied water to, to perform a, a baptism, the baptism itself is valid, even if the, if the water is muddy. So in that sense, it's, um, there is an objective quality to the Catholic faith that's very reassuring. It's that same, you know, I know you're a fan of Evelyn Waugh's, um, as you know from Brideshead, you know, the, uh, which, uh, spoiler alert, the, the final scene of, of, of the patriarch's death where he's been out of the faith for 20 years and yet when the priest comes, he, you know, and, and blesses him, he, he crosses himself. Uh, uh, that's that objective sacramental quality of the faith that, that I find very beautiful. I've been racking my brain all week as we've been getting ready for this, trying to think of a question that you haven't already been asked before. So you probably have been asked this, but I haven't heard the answer yet, so I'm curious. Did you take a baptismal or confirmation name? Yes, Augustine. Augustine? Yes. Why? Because I read the confessions, and it was it was me. I mean, I, not, I'm not comparing myself to a saint. I mean the lousy well, part. Well, you're supposed to, are no, we? No, no, are we the, all supposed the, to? The, the, the lousy stages of Augustine, the young Augustine, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> I think of any saint, St. Augustine's one that we can all compare ourselves to, I hope. <laughs> Including in his, by the way, like, not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Give me a few more years. I definitely took a few more years to, to sow a few wild oats. Well, we're very glad that you were able to write this, this account of your conversion. Thank you, I think it's going to be a lot of help for a lot of people. Thanks for having me. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. He's your host, J.D. Flynn. And that's Carl Bunderson. And Jesus is our co-pilot. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike <laughs> and Jonah McCown. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Special thanks this week to everyone who shared their stories on today's episode. See you next week.